host, Annie Randall, and this is a safe space for real talk regarding all things Jesus, mental health, and of course, your relationship with food. Welcome back to the second season of Triad Warriors, the podcast where we are talking about the many factors that can cause and or influence the development of disordered eating behaviors. In this season, we have covered everything from biology to psychology to sociology and more. And in today's episode, we are going to be talking about the role that the patriarchy, yes, the patriarchy, has in body dissatisfaction and disordered eating. With that said, I do want to issue a trigger warning on this episode. All of us have been affected by the persistent patriarchal systems and ideologies that are ingrained into our society. And for many, these effects carry deeply rooted wounds. Consequently, I completely understand if you are not ready to listen. Personally, understanding the roles of patriarchy and dismantling the internalization of these systems within my own life has been profoundly helpful as well as transformative. However, we will be talking about things like purity culture in today's episode, and I completely understand that this topic may be triggering for many. In addition, I will be mentioning statistics on domestic violence, sexual abuse, sex trafficking, and other forms of violence against women. Thus, if you feel as though hearing these statistics might be triggering for you, then please feel free to pause the episode or even turn it off altogether. The goal of this podcast is to help and to heal. And personally, I believe that education and knowledge are parts of the healing process. However, we have to be ready for this part of the process and it's completely okay if you are not there. I myself have turned off plenty of podcasts or closed out of numerous articles and studies in order to protect myself throughout my own healing journey. With that said, for those who do want to listen, then I do encourage you to check in with your body throughout this entire episode. Take note of any stress, anxiety, tension, panic, overwhelm, fear, anger, frustration, and or sadness that may arise. And respond in whatever way you feel is best for you and your mental health. If that means turning the episode off, then turn it off. If that means pausing the episode and coming back later, then hit that pause button. Basically, I want to be upfront with you regarding the topics for today, which again includes purity culture, the patriarchy, and sexual and domestic violence. I want to give you permission to take care of yourself because your mental health and overall well-being does matter to me. Okay. So now that we have all of that covered, we can go ahead and get started. I'm going to assume that the majority of you know something about the patriarchy. This is most definitely not a new phrase to anyone. However, I find that many Americans seem to think that the patriarchy is a thing of the past. That it is something which ended with women's suffrage in 1920. Many Americans seem to think that the patriarchy is something that happens out there in other countries around the world. 
And while women do have the ability to vote and work and do other things within the United States, the assumption that patriarchy no longer exists is simply not true. In fact, this assumption is exactly what has allowed the patriarchy and misogyny to persist, particularly within religious institutions and under the guise of phrases like, quote, Christian patriarchy. This is so silly. Patriarchy is patriarchy and it harms us all. With that said, I want to spend a little time defining what the patriarchy is and how it presents itself within the United States as well as other countries around the world. Then we will get into the ways in which the subjugation and objectification of women has led to body dissatisfaction and disordered eating basically how this all relates to what we are talking about here in season two. I also want to provide you with some additional resources because as one of my friends said, this topic could be an entire season in itself. And it very much could. In fact, I will barely be scratching the surface in today's episode and there are lots of other women and men doing work to break down these harmful systems. Therefore, I want to point you in that direction. For more information on the patriarchy and some of the topics that we will be talking about today, I suggest the following podcasts. Number one, Reclaiming My Theology. Number two, Breaking Down Patriarchy. And number three, Faith and Feminism. In addition, I recommend Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. This is an excellent read and one which is very well written, and I have several other book recommendations as well, which once my website is finished, I will list there for you. But in the meantime, if you want more recommendations, feel free to email me at hello at anniebethcompany.com or send me a DM on Instagram. Anyhow, let's begin our conversation by defining the patriarchy. Essentially, the patriarchy can be seen as the earliest system of domination. It can be seen as a political organization that unequally distributes power amongst men and women. However, it goes beyond this. The patriarchy is an unjust social system. It is one that subordinates, discriminates, and oppresses women. Moreover, the patriarchy includes all sociological and political mechanisms that exert male dominance over women. Basically, men justify dominance based on, quote, biological superiority and in religious spaces, quote, divine order. This justification effectively weaponizes God's word and asserts patriarchy as God's way. The patriarchy has historical origins in the family, and biblically, it can be traced back to the original sin. In Genesis, we see that women and men were created as equal partners designed to live in partnership with God and with one another. However, as sin entered into the world, so did patriarchy. Patriarchy was a consequence of sin. It was a part of the curse, not the blessing. And Jesus came to restore God's original design, which again was women and men living and working together in equal partnership. Anyhow, we do not need to get into the theology on that right now because it does exist outside of the church as well. 
Patriarchy is deeply ingrained into our society. And as Gerda Lerner describes in her work, The Creation of Patriarchy, it is built into the very systems in which we operate. In sociological terms, the patriarchy can be described as having two social categories, men as a social category, who then oppress women as a social category. This happens at a macro sociological scale, which again includes the social structures, institutions, and larger influences of a society. Furthermore, it also occurs at a micro sociological scale. Individual men oppress individual women through physical, mental, sexual, and spiritual control, which often appears through both peaceful and violent means. Peaceful means referring to political agendas and religious doctrine, and violent means referring to the various forms of abuse. Essentially, patriarchy places a higher value on men and a lesser value on women. Men's roles are placed in the public sector and women's roles in the private sector, which is then knit together by politics, religion, economics, language, family structures, the media, the process of historical documentation, and other large-scale institutions. With that said, the patriarchy has not always existed. It has a beginning, and consequently, it can also have an end. Unfortunately, though, bringing an end to patriarchal systems is not simple because these ideals have gradually become institutionalized and internalized within our way of living. Again, the Breaking Down Patriarchy podcast is a great resource for understanding the ways in which this all came about. I'm not going to get into that right now, though. Instead, what I want to talk about is how we see the influence of patriarchy in modern day society, because it has looked different at different times and in different places. First off, though, it's important to understand that the patriarchy doesn't mean that women do not have any power or rights. It doesn't mean that they lack all influence or access to resources, even within a country such as the United States, where it is supposedly the quote, best conditions for women, massive inequalities and internalized misogyny can and do still exist. In fact, I would argue that the United States is not the paradise that so many attempt to make it out to be. Yes, women do have many rights and abilities within the United States that women in other countries do not. However, there are many ways in which misogyny and patriarchal systems persist, and we have the data to back up that statement. But before we get into the statistics, I want to remind you of something from episode 2.6. Remember when we talked about the difference between personal problems and public issues? We talked about the fact that personal problems become public issues when said problems affect many individuals due to problems within the social structure of a society. And remember how we talked about the fact that poverty, crime, divorce, unemployment, and eating disorders are public issues, not just personal problems? The same goes for the many topics that I am about to cover. Things like domestic abuse, rape, sexual assault, human trafficking, and so forth are often wrongly viewed as a purely personal problem, problems that occur due to individual sin. And there most definitely is individual sin and wrongdoing in all of these areas of pain. Perpetrators need to be held accountable for their actions, justice needs to be served, and consequences need to stop falling on the shoulders of the victims. 
And at the same time, if we want to stop the perpetual cycle of harm, then we must look at the bigger picture as well. We must look at the overarching systems that uphold the abuse. With that said, let's now dive into some of those statistics. In the U.S., one in three women will experience domestic violence. That's 33%. Further, one in five women will be raped, and in nearly half of which the perpetrator will be an acquaintance or an intimate partner. Allow that to blow any misperceptions that you had of what rape is. Note also that according to the psychoanalyst Lynn Yonak, sexual violence is not fueled by sexual urges, but rather a desire for dominance and control. And this is why we see rape in prisons or as a war tactic. And if men are taught that they are better or above women, no matter how subtly, then men begin to view women as less than. Or worse, men begin to view women as objects for pleasure and consumption, which we will get into here in a bit. But first, let's talk some more statistics because patriarchal views and ideals are systematic, creating a world that caters to men and pushes women into the margins. And one such way we see this is through maternity care. First off, I find it to be appalling that the U.S. is one of three countries in the world not to offer mandatory paid maternity leave. And as of 2020, only 20% of U.S. private sector workers had access to paid family leave. In addition, the U.S. is one of the top three countries with the most expensive childcare worldwide, making it difficult for mothers to justify working or single mothers to even have enough money to feed their children. Further, in the U.S., 50,000 women nearly die every year due to pregnancy-related complications, and more than 700 women do die. And black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications, 60% of which are preventable. Moreover, we are also in a time where Roe v. Wade has currently been overturned. And even the way in which we understand women's health is lagging due to the historic lack of inclusion of women in research. In fact, the NIH only established its first policy in encouraging researchers to include women in studies in 1987. And this inclusion did not even become a law until 1993. This law ensured that women and minorities are included in all clinical research and that variables should be studied as they affect these groups differently than white men. Keep in mind, this was passed only 30 years ago. Furthermore, in the U.S., women are seven times more likely to be sent home during a heart attack, and women are more likely to be be prescribed sedatives for pain rather than actual pain medications due to the false presumption that women's pain is psychosomatic. In addition, women in the U.S. still earn only 80 cents to the dollar of what a man earns, and a gender pay gap is present in almost all countries. Further, women are underrepresented in senior positions and overrepresented in low-paying jobs all across the globe, which makes them more vulnerable th to things such as the pandemic. According to the Gender Gap Index, the U.S. ranks 
51 out of the 149 countries that were evaluated in gender parity. There's honestly so much more that we could touch on when talking about the patriarchy, its origins, and how destructive its ideologies have been for women worldwide. But that would take much longer than we have time for. So what I wanna talk about now is how the patriarchy and consequently the objectification of women has led to the disordered eating and body body image issues that we see today. To do so, let's spend a little time looking at the ways in which the patriarchy has defined femininity and masculinity, and how these definitions have influenced the ways in which we view our own bodies as well as the bodies of others. But first, I do want to specify that we what we are talking about here, as gender identity is a growing topic these days, and it's not one that I am even going to pretend that I am qualified enough to touch on every aspect of. So I want to be clear, I am specifically talking about the ways in which a patriarchal society defines femininity and masculinity, and how the internalization of this definition can and has impacted the ways in which we interact with bodies and consequently food. I'm specifically talking about the ways in which strict gender roles and definitions of womanhood and manhood can and have contributed to the rising rates of disordered eating and body dissatisfaction. So let's get started. In a patriarchal society, men are stereotypically seen as aggressive, competitive, and action or instrumentally oriented. Women, on the other hand, are stereotypically seen as passive, cooperative, and emotionally expressive. Traits such as control, dominance, and assertiveness are perceived as masculine, intertoxic masculinity, and then traits such as softness and weakness are seen as feminine. Masculinity is promoted as positive and femininity is silenced and othered. Furthermore, the patriarchy insists that men lead and women follow. With that said, these stereotypes are implicitly implied far more often than they are explicitly stated, though they are explicitly stated as well. And for those who have experienced religious, spiritual, and or emotional abuse, the explicit can leave deep wounds. Nevertheless, the implicit messaging is just as powerful and formative, and it starts at a very young age. Take, for example, toys. These gender stereotypes are built into children's toys, going beyond functional gender roles and setting the stage for what a man and woman should look like and establishing the cultural body ideals for both girls and boys. For girls, we have things like Barbies and Bratz dolls, both of which present the feminine as unrealistically thin, glamorized, and get this, sexualized. For boys, we have action figures in G.I. Joe, which presents the masculine as strong and muscular. From a young age, implicit messaging can create a sense of dissatisfaction and shame, especially when the individual does not meet the standards set forth by society, whether or not those standards are even realistic. And it's important to recognize that both men and women are subjected to these messages. However, women are more vulnerable to body dissatisfaction due to their subordinate societal position. 
In fact, according to Dr. Lindsay Kite and Dr. Lexi Kite, quote, men who don't fit appearance ideals are much less likely to face the repercussions that women do because our culture values men for more than their bodies or their sexual desirability. Their looks are just one part of their identity and rarely the most important part, end quote. In their book, More Than a Body, they go on to explain how men who do not fit the societal standards can and do struggle with body dissatisfaction. However, men's bodies do not define their worth, privilege, or power in the same way as women's bodies define our worth, privilege, and power, which is why we see women struggling with eating disorders at twice the rate. And this power differential can be seen through the ways in which dress codes target women and girls, forcing women and girls to cover up, which effectively objectifies the female body. In the same book, More Than a Body, Dr. Lindsay Kite and Lexi Kite so eloquently state, quote, girls learn that the most important thing about them is how they look. Boys learn that the most important thing about girls is how they look. Girls look at themselves, boys look at girls, girls are held responsible for boys looking at them, girls change how they look, boys keep looking, the problem isn't how girls look, the problem is how everyone looks at girls, end quote. Enter purity culture and the church. But first, let's take a deep breath. Are you guys with me? We've covered a lot so far and we are almost through the thick of it. But here's where things get really sticky, especially for those who have grown up in the evangelical Christian church. If that's you, then you are likely all too familiar with this rhetoric. You are likely all too familiar with purity culture. But for those of you who are not familiar, allow me to explain. Purity culture refers to the evangelical purity movement of the 1990s and early 2000s, when young Christians, namely young Christian girls, wrongfully learned that human sexuality is a sin in and of itself, and sex education focused exclusively on preserving virginity, specifically for girls. Within purity culture, patriarchy thrived. Purity culture placed fathers in the guardian role, insisting that fathers must lovingly protect their daughter's virginity at all costs. Women and girls were disempowered as their bodies became the property of their fathers, their boyfriends, and eventually their husbands, but never their own. Us girls were never taught about our own bodies. We were never taught how to set boundaries, nor were we taught how to practice consent. Consequently, we learned to distrust our bodies, and purity culture led to deep shame and fear. With that said, the bulk of purity culture's messaging fell on the shoulders of women and girls. Girls were seen as the keepers of purity. Girls' bodies were considered to be dangerous and stumbling blocks for men. We were told that we had to, quote, help our brothers out. Because apparently, our brothers are visual creatures and the mere sight of a bra strap or a belly button will cause them to experience uncontrollable sexual urges. 
I'm sorry, but if men have so little control over their sexual urges, then why are we giving them control over literally everything else? It makes little to no sense, and it has caused a great deal of harm. And yet this is the messaging we have been and honestly continue to be given. Women are objectified in many facets of life, but the presence of female objectification within the church has a uniquely significant impact on the way in which girls see their own bodies and the way in which boys see girls' bodies. Within purity culture, objectification appeared through the objectified analogies of female purity. In these analogies, we were compared to an unlicked lollipop. And as soon as we had sex, we were told that we would become the undesirable lollipop that had already been licked. We were compared to a flower whose petals would be torn off with each sexual encounter. And eventually we would become a petalless flower whom no one would want. We were asked who would want a flower with all of its petals torn off? Who would want that flower? And as young teens and preteens, we internalize that fear. We internalize that shame. We didn't want to be seen as a petalist, undesirable flower. No way. A lollipop that had already been licked. A body that was no longer lovable. Especially as girls who had been taught that our bodies made us both desirable and dangerous. All at the same time. Our bodies did give us power, but it also took power away from us. And back then, I didn't know what I know now. I didn't know what harm this messaging would cause to me, and I certainly didn't want to be that petalless flower because who would want that flower? And maybe you've had a similar experience. But had I known what I know now, I would have had a different response. I would have stood up for my younger self because if I am sure of anything, then I am sure that Jesus wants that flower. Jesus wants that so-called petalless flower. Jesus wants all of us, and there's absolutely nothing that we can or cannot do in order to change that fact. Ladies, our bodies are not objects to be looked at. They are not for others to control. However, the patriarchy and purity culture has stripped us of our autonomy. The patriarchy taught us girls that our bodies are something to be ashamed of and something to use. We were taught that our bodies are moral threats and that our developing bodies had become stumbling blocks that would cause boys to sin. The consequence of which has led to rampant victim blaming. What was she wearing? Where was she walking? What was she doing? The patriarchy and purity culture have blamed women for men's behavior because both place women in a subordinate role to men, a role in which female bodies are tools for male pleasure and satisfaction. Purity culture and the patriarchy are forms of sexual and emotional violence, and the purity and purity culture has led to a whole slew of complications for its victims. Complications that include body dissatisfaction and disembodiment, eating disorders, sexual shame, pelvic floor dysfunction and sexual dysfunction, shame surrounding sexual orientation and gender identity, and more. Furthermore, It doesn't just stop here. And the media plays a role in self-objectification and body body dissatisfaction as well. Body image develops at a young age, with some studies suggesting that significant developments occur between five and six years old. And as I've mentioned before, statistics show that 
42% of first to third grade girls want to be thinner, and 81% of 10-year-old children are afraid of being fat. In a world that is so focused on the female body, can you blame them? If you're like me, then you grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s. You grew up during a time where extreme thinness was in, and unrealistic beauty standards were plastered all over magazines and TV screens. You also grew up in a time during which the BMI categories were changed, and suddenly overnight, millions of people were classified as quote obese or quote overweight. With that said, we have now moved on from the lovely 2000s and into a period of body standards which are arguably way worse. In our digital social media age, we are now inundated with a far greater amount of unrealistic, unattainable beauty standards. I mean, we have access to millions of filtered, photoshopped, and posed photos right inside our pockets. And the global diet and beauty industries were worth $765.9 billion in 2021 collectively, both of which primarily target women. Further, according to Dr. Lindsay and Dr. Lexi Kite, quote, female characters are three times more likely to be shown in sexually revealing clothing than male characters, and three times more likely to be verbally objectified than male characters, end quote. And this is within family films. With that said, teens spend an average of 8.5 hours per day consuming media entertainment and tweens spend an average of 5.5 hours per day. This means that kids are spending roughly 5 to 9 hours per day absorbing potentially fatphobic, misogynistic, and objectifying messages. It is no wonder that 81% of 10-year-old children are afraid of being fat. Media definitely affects how we see our bodies and how our kids see their bodies. In fact, studies have shown that a regular viewing of hashtag fitspiration images is shown to worsen body image, increase concerns about eating, and result in feelings of guilt and shame about one's choices and behaviors. Self-objectification is defined as the internalization of an objectified view of one's body, resulting in greater emphasis placed on appearance over ability. Moreover, self-objectification results in increased feelings of shame and guilt about one's body and behavior, as well as decreased sensitivity to bodily cues such as hunger, fatigue, and pain. Further, self-objectification leads to low self-esteem, poor body image, anxiety, depression, and disordered eating, all of which is worsened by the exposure to sexually objectifying media. And unfortunately, the fitness industry is rampant with hypersexualized objectifying imaging, particularly for women. With that said, the regular viewing of images under the hashtag Fitspiration are all linked to increased feelings of shame and guilt and anxiety about one's body, which if you have spent any time looking at this Im- these images, it should come as no surprise. It should come as no surprise that a regular consumption of Photoshop filtered and posed butt shots and shirtless selfies would have a negative impact on the viewer's body image and self-perception, especially if she or he does not fit into a society's narrow standards for beauty. 
Movement and regular exercise are important components of overall health, sure. Movement and exercise have numerous physical, mental, and even spiritual benefits. However, sociocultural influences have shifted the focus away from what our bodies can do to how our bodies appear. In fact, a study which looked at the content of images under the hashtag Fitspiration identified six harmful themes that are present on social media. Number one, a fit body is a sexually attractive body. Number two, a fit body is a sign of moral superiority. Number three, your choices are self-defining and quitting is the ultimate failure. Number four, pain during exercise is good and normal the old no pain, no gain. Number five, you must conquer and discipline your body, which cannot be trusted. And lastly, number six, anyone who is outside of the community is a quote hater who also cannot be trusted. Essentially, fitness has been turned into something which is less about health, athletic capability, and internal well-being, into something that is more about aesthetics and appearing attractive to others. The achievement of thinness and muscularity has been glorified, even if that means engaging in disordered and unhealthy eating and exercise behaviors. And this is a massive problem especially for children and teens. This is a problem which has very much resulted in the skyrocketing rates of eating disorders over the past several years. Moreover, when we combine the patriarchal objectification of the female body with the messaging put forth by diet culture, we have a recipe for disaster. We are told that we must fit into a specific body ideal in order to be lovable and acceptable. We are told that we must be thin with curves in all of the right places. That we must have no cellulite and no wrinkles. That we must keep it tight for our husbands and our partners, whatever that means. And the diet industry capitalizes on our insecurities. The diet industry capitalizes on the opportunity to sell weight loss and, quote, improve body image, which, FYI, is not guaranteed through the alteration of one's body. The diet industry sells us quick fix plans to the trauma and shame that we have experienced. And the diet industry complicates our relationship with food by telling us what we should and should not be eating in order to achieve the body ideal. And this is how the patriarchy relates to food. Women, who account for two-thirds of all reported eating disorders, are objectified and placed under the authority of men. Women are told that they exist to serve and please men, which is achieved through submission and sex appeal. Women's bodies become a source of power, and thus women experience an increased pressure to achieve and maintain unrealistic body standards through any means necessary. And the impact of patriarchy doesn't stop there. In fact, things like pornography, sex trafficking, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, and all of the statistics listed earlier are linked to the effects of the objectification and subordination of women through patriarchal systems of belief. So, what do we do? Well, we need to heal. We need to heal the patriarchal wound. And to be clear, the patriarchy hurts both women and men. 
It hurts men in profound ways and toxic masculinity can very much play into body dissatisfaction and eating disorders amongst men. In fact, it's important to note that males represent 25% of those with anorexia and 36% with binge eating disorder. And males are just as likely to suffer from subclinical disordered eating behaviors as well. So patriarchy healing is something that both men and women need. I would even argue that having male allies is essential in creating change, as change cannot occur until we change the way in which men view and treat women. And this also involves healing the patriarchal wound. With that said, I highly recommend working with a therapist in order to heal. If you remember from episode 2.5, Nadine Roy is a licensed professional counselor, and she is a great option if you are in the Oregon or Washington areas. If not, though, you can check out BetterHelp, Psychology Today, and Good Therapy for providers in your area. You can also check out the Intuitive Eating website, or the, or you can call the NEDA National Eating Disorder Association helpline. Secondly, we need to create change, which begins in the home and spreads out from there. According to Melinda Gates in her book, The Moment of Lift, one of the first things that we can do to promote equality is by the sharing of, quote, unpaid work done at home. In her book, Melinda Gates explains how an unequal distribution of unpaid work at home is the greatest barrier for women in the workplace, which in turn perpetuates patriarchal systems and structures. However, when we distribute the work more evenly, gender biases within the home begin to break down, partnerships are created, and women are empowered, both at home and in the workplace. With that said, change in the workforce, the community, the government, and other larger scale institutions is essential as well. And one large scale area in which we can directly influence through our choices is the media. Media is starting to shift, but it does have a long way to go. And this is why it's important to pay attention to what you are choosing for entertainment. Filmmakers make films based on what people want to watch. Therefore, your choices influence filmmakers' decisions. Your choices help to determine what gets made and what doesn't. And your choices help to bring about equality, but that's only if you are watching films that promote gender equality. A simple test for ensuring at least some level of gender equality within movies and shows is known as the Bechtel test. It seems extremely basic, but honestly, this is where we're at. And you would be surprised by how many movies and shows do not actually pass this test. Basically, all it takes for a film to pass this test is to have the following criteria met. The film must have one, two named women who, two, talk to each other about, three, something other than a man. Again, super simple, but many films do not pass. In addition, my husband and I I have committed to the 50-50 rule, where we watch 50% of films with female leads and 50% of films with male leads. This is perhaps something you can do as well, and it is something that is suggested by the This Changes Everything documentary, which I highly recommend for more information on gender disparities in media. Other important changes to make are on your social media and within your conversations. Who are you following on social media? 
our bodies being objectified? How are you personally talking about women and bodies? How can we shift these things in order to create a more inclusive environment? Basically, the question is, how can we bring those who are on the margins back in? And this goes beyond women. According to Melinda Gates, when we bring those who are on the margins back in, the entire community benefits. So basically, the goal here is that we need to start praising the individual talents and traits of individual people. Let's stop putting people and putting yourself in boxes. And women, please remember, you do not always need to be the peacemaker. You were not created as subordinate nor inferior. You are an awe-inspiring masterpiece. Your preferences matter. Your needs matter. Your consent matters. You matter. You are more than a body. And at the same time, it is time to heal your relationship with your body. It is time for you to come home to your body which is exactly what we will be talking about next season on Triad Warriors, the podcast. Next season, we will be talking about body image and how to heal your relationship with your body. Until then, though, please feel free to DM me or email me with any questions. So thank you for listening to this season, and I will catch you on the next season. I am Annie Randall. This is Triad Warriors, and food freedom starts here.